Election Day was earlier this week, and for some, Election Day is marked by freedom, and it's heavy with hopefulness and excitement, and people love posting pictures of themselves wearing their I Voted stickers. And yet for others, it doesn't feel that way. It's more like a day of disillusionment, of being reminded of past elections with past promises and past failures to keep those promises. It feels like a day of choosing between the lesser of two evils or just treating voting like a random throw of the dice. And for many Christians, it's often a day when we collectively look around at the cultural issues that are the subjects of each candidate's platforms, at um, the ca- candidate's bios themselves, at you know the, the stack of political ads that we get that um, are unashamedly attacking their opponents, and even at the many aggressive conversations that have been clogging all of our social media feeds um, about the upcoming election and just politics in general. And we can think, what happened to Christian America? Which is so interesting because, Jim, I think that your response to that would come as a surprise to many based on what I've heard you said. Unless I've misheard you these last few years, I think that you would answer that question by saying it never existed. You care to explain? I would answer it that way. Uh, The history of early America really does not deserve to be considered as being uniquely or distinctly or even predominantly Christian. Not if you mean a state of society reflecting the ideas uh, presented in scripture. This doesn't mean Christian values were absent from American history. They were there. Uh, There's been a great deal of commendable Christian beliefs and practices and influence in the history of the United States and the colonies that formed our country. Uh, Christian goals and aspirations were part of the settlement of North America. Uh, Christian factors contributed to the struggle for uh, national independence. Uh, Christian principles played a role in the founding documents of the United States. I mean, this is all indisputable. But the larger truth is that it's best termed that we were a religious country, not Mm -hmm. uh, necessarily a uniquely Christian one. And even when our forefathers and foremothers were attempting to flesh out Christian principles, they weren't always very consistent. Uh, For example, when you think of the Puritans, the Puritans are the typical one put forward of the 1600s. Uh, do you focus on their desire to establish a Christian colony and live by scripture? Or do you focus on the stealing of Native American lands and their habit of displacing and even murdering those Native Americans when it proved to be convenient? Hmm. So it's complex. Yeah. Hmm. What's really interesting about that response is that it really refutes some of the primary claims of Christian nationalism. Can you just take a moment to explain what Christian nationalism is to our listeners? Going where angels fear to tread. Okay. (laughs) No, that's good. And it's good that that's the subject of this podcast. Here's the idea, uh, or better put, let me tell you the story, the the, the narrative of Christian nationalism. Once upon a time, (laughs) there was a nation founded by Christians established on Christian principles and ideals in order to be a Christian nation. It was a city upon a hill. It was a new Jerusalem. And God smiled on this nation and placed his hand of providence on her. And he led her and he helped her grow. And soon she became the greatest nation on the planet and took stands against moral evil and political tyrants. And she came to the rescue of of other nations and fought against the spread of godless ideologies. But then 
that nation turned away from God. And those uh, chose leaders who did not honor God and passed laws that did not honor God. And that nation soon gave herself over to sin and deception. It soon went from a city on a hill, uh, a new Jerusalem, to a new Sodom and Gomorrah. So God took his hand of blessing off of her, uh, waiting for her to repent and again return to him to once again elect the right officials and pass the right laws and do away with accepting sin and immorality and once again become the Christian nation she was established and meant to be. So if you are a good God-fearing Christian, country-loving Christian, then you've got a target on the wall to get your country back to being a Christian nation uh, through any and every means possible. And the lowest hanging fruit is what seem to be doing it from the top down through the political process. In other words, get a Christian in office or at least someone who's going to stand for and vote with Christian values. And the goal is to once again, make America what it originally was and was always meant to be a Christian nation. So that's the story. And let's be clear, the idea of chosenness and special blessing from God has been a constant theme in various currents throughout the history of the United States beginning with the Puritans and their desire and the famous words of John Winthrop in 1630, where he said, we shall be as a city upon a hill. Uh, historian Conrad Cherry uh, noted that throughout uh, their history, Americans have been possessed by this acute sense of divine election. Uh, they have fancied themselves a new Israel, uh, people chosen for the awesome responsibility of serving as a light to the nations. It has long been, and it's interesting how we put it, this has long been the essence of America's motivating mythology. Mm. It became full-throated in the 1970s, which uh, you're too young to remember, <laughs> A uh, but I know you've studied it. But it became full-throated in the 1970s. Christians became consumed with the idea that America was founded as a Christian nation and flourished under the benevolent hand of uh, divine providence, arguing further that America's blessings will remain only as long as America is faithful to God as a nation. This led to the formation of what was known as a Christian right uh, or conservative Christian political activity, which became associated largely with contemporary American evangelicalism at that time. These groups organized uh, or attempted to organize evangelicals to support largely really surfaced in the 1980 election of Ronald Reagan to the presidency of the United States and then to lend their voice to a host of issues at the time that included school prayer, uh, tuition tax credits and the reversal of the Supreme Court decision uh, surrounding Roe uh, or Roe v. Wade. And so here was the essence of their thinking. It was very clear. If we could only have Christians in the White House and Christians in Congress and on the Supreme Court and populating other leadership, you know, elites, um, the morality would be enacted. Faith would once again find the fertile soil needed to flourish and find its footing in people's lives. So Christian nationalism is nothing new. Um, we're just seeing it now in the 2020s, and particularly over the last two to three years, in its most recent manifestation, it just has some new wrinkles to it, uh, sadly, uh, violence. Mm. You said Christian nationalism is not new. Is it also perhaps not unique to the United States. I guess what I'm, I'm wondering is in listening to you about like the story you mentioned um, at thinking of America as the new Jerusalem and that, you know, 
recalls to mind that this all really comes from the biblical precedent of the Bible with this idea of a chosen people and a chosen nation. And so I wonder if um, have people in other countries or other groups kind of gleaned that ideology from the Bible and then just re-sewed it, have re-sewn it into their own political context, either for their nation or a particular community? Like, is there anything that's uniquely American about a Christian nationalist framework? Such a good question, and it deserves an answer. That it, I mean, that, that it goes beyond this idea. Yes, they're they're trying to take this chosen nation Israel motif, but that wasn't the way it was in the Old Testament. It wasn't largely political. It was it was all part of redemption. It was a redemptive chosenness. The the, the beachhead on which the the Savior would come, and the beachhead on which all the world would be reclaimed back. So there's nothing biblical about this at all in that sense. Mm-hmm. It's a misuse of the idea of chosenness. Let's talk about it. Let's, let's look into this. Um, is there anything like the idea of a Christian nation in the Bible? Um, yes, Israel did enjoy a special status as a nation under God. But since the coming of Jesus, we're looking at sociopolitically, uh, Christians have uh, disagreed as to whether the current modern state of Israel remains special as a nation to God or more special than anyone else, much less God's chosen people. I mean, Jesus certainly was a fulfillment of that redemptive plan. But regardless... You know, we can go back and forth on that one. Is it appropriate to look at the United States as a unique uh, among the other nations of the world as opposed to uh, or being seen as a special province of God and agent of God or to look at any nation that way? It's not just it's not just um, uh, America. There's some interesting scriptures to look at here, uh, beginning with a scene from the Old Testament that I've never heard anyone reference in light of this conversation. And I, to me, it's just this glaring omission. Um, the situation was with Joshua, uh, the great leader of the people of Israel, when they came to the city of Jericho after crossing the Jordan River. It was the first city that they encountered. And it was a city hostile to the coming of the Israelites. And it soon became clear this was going to be an armed conflict. But God had something else in mind, and it's a well-known story to demonstrate that the promised land was going to be his gift to them and his work to them. He told Joshua through an angel to, instead of attack it, to march around it and blow his horns and then the fortified city would fall. But something happened just before the angel delivered that message that I've always found intriguing and provocative. When Joshua first engaged the angel, um, before being told of the marching plan, he, he, he asked the angel upon seeing him, he said, so are you for us or for our enemies? And the angel said, neither. <laughs> and then he went on to say, but as commander of the Lord's army, the commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Okay, that just jumps off the page. Yeah. I mean, here is no one less than Joshua uh, leading the people of Israel into the promised land. And when he asked the angel, are you for us? Or are you for those Jericho people? Uh, the angel says, neither. I come as an angel of the Lord. Uh, no sides were being taken in the political back and forth of human affairs. It's not that they didn't matter. I mean, obviously, the angel came to tell Joshua what to do to take Jericho. But uh, it was just that helping Joshua is not about taking a side in human government. Yeah, so he put Joshua and the people of Israel something kind of in their place. Mm-hmm. He said, look, don't think I'm, I'm, I'm here because I'm on your side. I'm here because God is calling you to do his work in this particular way. And in this case, in this, this, this instance, this is his work. But it's not about sides. And it's not about you being more special than anyone else. God's work on this planet, his redemptive plan, his movement throughout all of history to call human beings into relationship with himself, ultimately through the cross work of Christ, that is his side. 
if you will. But um, you might ask then, well, what about, um, you know, the decision or the desire to establish America as a Christian nation? And that's being talked about politically, too. Let's just declare it a Christian nation. Well, for that, just look at Jesus himself. I mean, there's 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 some pretty low hanging fruit here. One of the most well-known miracles is Jesus feeding of the 5,000, which obviously was more than that because there were women and children there. It was 5,000 men. <clears throat> but what a lot of people don't know is that when you look at the end of that story, um, there was a desire for the people to make Jesus king. And Jesus, very intentionally, it says, he slipped away into the hills by himself. Um, the people of Jesus' day had come to hope and pray for and expect a Messiah. But in their minds, it would be an earthly king of a national leader, a political force that would sweep Rome off the map and establish Israel as a preeminent nation and force in the world. That God's law and God's rule uh, would come through the Messiah in an earthly, political, legal, judicial manner. Uh, hey, Moses led the country out of slavery in Egypt. Surely the Messiah would lead them out of captivity in terms of Rome. But while Jesus was the Messiah, he was, he was not that kind of Messiah. Uh, it wasn't an earthly agenda, but a heavenly one. His was not political in nature, but spiritual. So he obviously did not allow himself or want to be crowned king. Um, think about another scene from his life. This one toward the end of his life as he stood before the um, Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, uh, who was trying to figure out what to do with this person. And he just asked him point blank, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, well, my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it was, we'd be fighting. There, there'd be open conflict right now. And my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over. But my kingdom is not of this world. And so he makes it clear, yes, I'm a king, but and I have a kingdom, but uh, it's not one with soldiers and it's not one maintained by military might. It's not a national or political kingdom at all. In fact, that's not what I came to be about. It isn't the kingdom that is even of this world. In fact, making his mission about the kingdoms of this world, interestingly, about ruling nations and politics was the great one of the great temptations put forward by Satan for him. It was oh. the third of the three temptations. And a lot of people overlook that. You know, hey, you want Christian nationalism? <laughs> Satan said, I'll give it to you. I'll, I'll give it to you right now. I'll give you complete political dominion. And uh, it was interesting because it was a third of the temptations. And many felt like it was kind of like he's, he wanted to save the best for last, wanted to pull out the big guns when the first two didn't work. And, um, and of course, Jesus refused it. But, but think about the power of this particular temptation. Satan is essentially saying, okay, you love this world so much, you can have it. And you know, I'll give it to you. You know, take it, run with it, do what you want with it. He could have instantly stepped in as a result and eliminated unemployment and wiped out uh, poverty and abolished war and, and crime and ended famine and stopped sickness and, and disease and erased homelessness. He could have set up the kingdom of God on earth in all of its fullness. Satan knew exactly what the temptation was he was putting before him. He was saying, Jesus, look at all the good you could do. Look at all the good you could do. And just think of how good this would feel. You don't, you don't have to go to the spiritual route. You can go the political route. You can avoid the cross. Just take up power. And, uh, and of course, um, he said no, because what the world needed was not ultimately political in nature. So I'll just say, do you find anything like a Christian nationalism or any other kind of nationalism like that uh, or the seeds of it in the Bible, either in the people of Israel or the life of Jesus? And the answer is an unequivocal no. It's amazing how clearly you presented what I think is the answer to the next question that I have for you. But 
and just having challenging us to consider, you know, if Jesus really thought that the best way to achieve, you know, his mission to bring about, you know, his redemptive plan was through government, then that is where he would have set himself up. And then he, but he didn't like in, in even being offered that it's not like he just didn't have the chance to, um, but even being offered that, like you mentioned, being tempted by that, um, by the devil, his followers wanted him to do that. That is so interesting in light of the Christian nationalist claim, which is that that is the best way. That is what we need to do. We need to, if we're going to have any hope of, of restoring Christian values or being a part of, I, I don't know if this is an overstatement, but like um, of really participating in that redemptive plan, it has to be through government. And so, I don't know, do you have any more thoughts on that? I'm curious. Uh, one, I think this is important. I, I hope we've shown a bit about how Christian nationalism isn't true historically in terms of the history of America. Uh, it's not found in scripture. And to the point of your question, it is not the most penetrating, powerful way for Christians to work for the kingdom in our day. I'm not saying politics don't matter. They do. And we can talk about the balance if you want. But is the ultimate goal a Christian nation or a nation of Christians? Hmm. And I want to repeat that. Is the ultimate goal a Christian nation or a nation of Christians? And again, I think the answer is without, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's clear, crystal clear. The ultimate goal is a nation of Christians, which I might add, will make the nation more decisively Christian than anything that could ever be legislated. Right, yeah. uh, if we had the same passion for sharing the message of Jesus and his grace and his love and his truth as we do for sharing our political views, this would be a radically changed world. Because you can't pass a law that changes the human heart. And the heart of the matter is the human heart. Um, I don't know if you and I have ever talked about the writings of Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Um, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm a, I've read, I think, most of everything he's written. But um, his epic work, The Gulag Archipelago, he has this famous line in there or section there where he talks about that the line separating good and evil passes not between states, uh, or between classes, or between political parties, but right through every human heart and through mm. all human hearts. That's good. I, yeah, no, I don't have that book on my bookshelf, but I think I have heard that quote before. Oh, okay, you need, I'm... To, you need to add that one. <laughs> add it to the TBR list. Um, don't, I'm don't gonna... Next, you haven't read Dostoevsky, or else we'll really. Oh no, yes, that I have. Yeah. Good. good. <laughs> Are those Kiramatov? Yes. Oh, yeah. Good, so good. Good, 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 good. Another podcast on that. But anyways, yeah, I want to take sure, the bait. I want to make sure I was raising you right. Oh, oh yes, for sure. Um, okay. I want to take the bait on something you just said when you said um, that we can talk about the balance. Because I do want to talk about the balance because I feel like that is such a gray area and a difficult place for us to navigate. Essentially of um, that, you know, while basically all that you said, you know, helps us to realize that, okay, we can take a breath and that not all of our hope needs to be on the government on government or what the um results of the most recent election are and yet what you didn't say and what i know that you would not say is that um christians don't need to be involved at all like politics doesn't matter at all and so how would you define that balance where how where do we stand in the in-between politics matter uh and if you are a christian you should be politically active uh, the reason is because culture matters and the world matters and we're citizens in the world. And the Bible says that as citizens, we have a duty to the world in which we live. I actually just recently 
reposted a blog I, I did on this. Jesus couldn't have made this more clear than in his famed Sermon on the Mount when he called us to be salt and light. And those are very important metaphors and foundational to cultural engagement in, in many ways. And Jesus says salt was one of the most useful and important elements you could possess. And it was not what it did for the taste of food. It was a preservative. And so if you had a fish or a piece of meat that you couldn't eat right away, you would take some salt and you would rub it in. And then uh, that salt would keep the meat from decaying. So when Jesus said that we should live our life as like salt to the earth, what he meant was that we should live in such a way that our presence and activity in the world uh, acts like salt. It, 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 it keeps the world from decaying morally. Um, letting our light shine had to do with the truth about what Christ wants everyone to know in life. Uh, the light is the message of Christ. So you can think of it this way. Salt is a negative influence, meaning it works against something. Light is a positive influence. It's trying to bring something. So we work against moral and cultural decay and we work for truth. This means that being a passive observer of culture is not an option. John Stott, the great British uh, pastor and, and leader, uh, once noted that you can hardly blame unsalted meat for going bad. It can't do anything else. So don't, he was like, you saying, don't blame the world. The real question is, where was the salt? Where was what was supposed to be keeping this from becoming moral decay? Um, and this obviously includes involvement in politics. I get asked from time to time whether Christians should even bother with politics. And they have this idea like, what difference is it going to make? You know, God's going to do what God's going to do. And this is a terribly passive approach to civic engagement and a deeply flawed fatalism that you won't find supported in the Bible. So let me put this as clearly as I know how so that there's no doubt. Uh, for a Christian, it is unconscionable not to be engaged in politics. Christians can and should pursue vocations in politics, work for legislation, and most certainly vote. To fail to do so would be abdicating our role as salt and light. But here's the question. How should a Christian be political? Uh, there are a lot of significant dynamics to keep in mind, but let me tell you what I consider to be the most significant. When it comes to politics, you are first and foremost a Christ follower. If you are a Christ follower, you are not primarily a Republican. You are not primarily a Democrat. Not first and foremost. You are a Christ follower first and a Republican or a Democrat. I'm putting this in American political terms, sure. but a, a Republican or a Democrat second. And it's a distant second. Um, and for some people, this is a relief because they feel politically homeless. They want to, to engage in, in, as a Christian, but the, the, the two parties or the two sides or left and right, it just is, it, they don't quite find their full place. Um, they don't identify. Maybe they're, I don't know, theologically conservative, but they're socially compassionate toward the poor. Uh, maybe they feel too conservative for some of the progressive ideas, but they're too progressive for some of the conservative ideas. Uh, maybe they, you know, care about the sanctity of life. You know, they're, they're pro-life in that sense, but they're also pro-environment. Um, it's, it's, it's easy to feel torn as a Christ follower. But what I would say is you're supposed to feel torn. That, that's the way it's supposed to be. Because your allegiance is to Jesus, not a platform. Your ultimate citizenship is not to America, nor to an American party. Uh, your ultimate citizenship is in heaven. And as a follower of Jesus, you're just going to find, uh, I, I believe, if you're thinking Christianly and biblically about it, that on some issues, one party has it right. On some issues, another party has it right. On another issue, both parties might have it wrong. <laughs> uh, and by right or wrong, I mean looking at whether they hold to a biblical position. 
as Christians, we may align with a party, but as Christ followers, we never stand under that party. We always stand over it, taking stands for Jesus wherever those stands may lead us. Uh, we're never to turn a blind eye or a deaf ear to what Jesus would clearly want us to see and hear just because it goes against our political party. And you and I have talked about this before, and it's popped up from time to time in, in these podcasts, but certainly you and I have had conversations about it offline, that one of the great cultural trends right now, and you see it most mostly with politics, is Christians abandoning theology to in order to embrace ideology. And then they make ideological issues more important than theological issues. And they'll leave a church if it doesn't match up with their political ideology, or and they have all this attachment to things. And the ideology becomes a religion and and as opposed to theology. Sure, and you don't have a lot of theology in the first place. It's easy that, to yeah. Yeah. So it's terribly aside. it's terribly dangerous. And so um you know, I keep coming back, just kind of wrap up my thoughts on this. I keep coming back to something Martin Luther King once said that uh, he said, we're not the master of the state. We're not the servant of the state. We are the conscience of the state. And I, I thought that was well put. That is good. You know, I don't know what is going to be the biggest takeaway for each of our listeners, but I know for me, just listening to you distinguish between a nation of Christians and um, a Christian nation was so convicting in that you've mentioned, you mentioned a handful of times that Christian nationalism or, you know, even just solely aligning yourself with a political party can be a much more passive approach than what God would want for us. You know, if it's just a, a Christian nation, then it almost kind of boils Christian influence down just to a vote or, you know, the, the smaller minority of people who have um, more proactive roles in, um, in the political sphere. But when you say a nation of Christians, that all of a sudden takes the responsibility and the, and the privilege of being a part of God's redemptive plan. And, and it, shines spotlights every single one of us who claim faith and and that it's it's all of us together we all need to be doing this and um even outside of how we vote so that is really personally challenging and convicting and um i'm sure there are other listeners who resonated with that too but Thank you, Jim, for tackling yet another very easy topic. I'm just kidding. Another uh, controversial topic. I don't know what we're going to talk about next week. I'm sure it'll be another I don't know, another difficult topic just like this one. Um, so be prepared for that. But listeners, I hope you tune in again um, to find out what that conversation will be about. Thanks for listening.